The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. All right, while they're passing those out, somebody uh, somebody hiding back in the back sent me this thing this morning, and I just thought I'd share it with you in case you weren't on his email list. This is uh, a little funny about kids being quick with their smart mouth. Teacher, Maria, go to the map and find North America. Maria goes to the map and says, here it is. Teacher, correct. Now, class, who discovered America? Maria. John, why are you doing your math multiplication on the floor? And John said, well, you told me to do it without using tables. <laughs> Teacher, Glenn, why do you always get so dirty? Glenn, well, I'm a lot closer to the ground than you are. <laughs> Teacher, George Washington not only chopped down his father's cherry tree, but also admitted it. Now, Louis, do you know why his father didn't punish him? Louis, because George still had the axe in his hand. <laughs> and my personal favorite, Harold, what do you call a person who keeps on talking when people are no longer interested? A preacher. <laughs> and then Alan sent one out that I think ought to just go, be read for the record. If you consider that there have been an average of 160,000 troops in the Iraq theater of operations during the last 22 months and a total of 2,112 deaths, that gives a firearm death rate of 60 per 100,000. The firearm death rate in Washington, D.C. is 80.6 per 100,000 for the same period. That means that you are 25% more likely to be shot and killed in the U.S. Capitol which has some of the strictest gun control laws in the nation than you are in Iraq. All right, so that should take care of that. Now, I need a copy of the handout. <laughs> Please, ma'am, <laughs> since I gave you mine to copy for everybody. Okay, there we go. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to let the Holy Spirit teach us and guide us and use what we study this evening uh, toward the uh, 
uh, our own spiritual growth. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come together this evening to study your word, that we have the privilege, the the peace in our culture to gather together. Father, we continually pray for the men and women who are serving in uniform, especially those in Iraq, Afghanistan, other hot spots. Father, we pray for them and for their families. We pray for their safety, for their courage. We pray that you would enable them to uh, root out and find the enemy, that we may defeat them, and that we may have victory in those theaters of operation. Father, we pray for us that we might keep our focus on the enemies that we face, the, the cosmic system around us, our own sin natures, and the devil. And the only source of strength, the only armament, is that that is provided by your word. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word that we might be strengthened by it, that we might understand these principles, that we might be encouraged to press on. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this handout that I just gave you is a, I thought I'd give you a timeline. People get so confused sometimes about chronologies when they don't have a timeline. A timeline is is sort of a temporal map, and this gives you uh, several things. Let me see. I think I have it on the screen here. There we go where you can take a look at this, and it starts off at the very top with the birth of Terah, who was Abraham's uh, father. And if you just look at that line, that places him in the year uh, 2296 B.C. And the birth of Abraham then is 2166 B.C. So as you go down these numbers on the left-hand column over here, you will note that they get increasingly smaller because you're going from further away up to the time of Christ. So you think backwards when you're in B.C. time. Now we see on this that approximately 2066 is when you have the birth of Isaac. And then you have the birth of Jacob and uh, Esau approximately 60 years later in 2006. And that's basically the chronology I want to just briefly go over tonight. You have the year, the event, and then the scripture reference for it on the right-hand side of the page. So Jacob and Esau are born in 2006. Jacob then gets married in 1923 B.C. So this is some, what is that about? 79 years uh, later. So Jacob was relatively old when he got married. And then uh, you have the birth of Judah in 1918 B.C. and then the end of Jacob's labors for his wives in 1916, which is the same time that Joseph is born. So we're in the Joseph narrative, and I just wanted to orient you to this Uh, a little bit this evening, especially in light of something that was uh, on television this last Sunday night. Now, I should have probably announced this, but I don't know if any of you saw this special the History Channel did on uh, 
the uh, historicity of the Exodus. Anybody see that? Anybody watch that? Jay watched it. Bruce watched it. Two people watched it. Boy, y'all got to keep up a little more. This was fascinating. Um, I called uh, I called Char- Charlie about it just before it started. He didn't know it was coming on either, so don't feel like you're totally lost. And uh, we had a good time chatting back and forth about it during the week. This was done by a Canadian filmmaker who uh, unusually and uniquely assumes that what the Torah says is historically, chronologically, and geographically correct and attempted to try to go into various archaeological discoveries to prove things. And that's one of the reasons it led me to produce this this um, chronological thing handout for you is because whenever you're watching some of these uh, various shows of that nature, they do play around with the dates, and you have to just stop and be careful. Even though this guy did a pretty fair job of holding to the historicity of the text, he played fast and loose with a couple of dates. Now, the funny thing was he went in the, in one case, he went in a direction where he made it a little uh, earlier than it should have been. That was the Exodus. Uh, Biblically speaking, we should date the Exodus about 1446 B.C. And we get that from 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, that says that 480 years after the Exodus, Solomon, um, Solomon constructed the temple or dedicated the temple. And we can date when Solomon dedicated the temple, which was in 966 B.C. So it's a simple matter of adding 966 and, and 480, and you come up with 1446 B.C. That's the biblical date. But the liberals have to be different because, they see, they don't trust the Bible. And so they come along and they say that, that uh, oh, that's too early. You know, Moses couldn't have been writing at that time and all this other stuff. And so they date it in the 12th century under the reign of Ramses. Now, you all know that Ramses was the pharaoh of the Exodus because you watched Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. And so you were brainwashed with the wrong pharaoh all these years. So um, that's, that's one of the reasons that some people choose Ramses is because they're using liberal dating for, uh, for, for the Exodus. But there's also a date issue with Joseph. There's people that put Joseph into the uh, 18th century B.C., 18th century, 1700s B.C., and so they shorten the time that they're uh, they're enslaved. These are people who are conservatives who take a, a 1446 B.C. date for the Exodus. They'll still take a 1700 date for uh, for Joseph, and they shrink the captivity. The, um, uh, Time of, that they're in Egypt about to, to about 260 years, and so that's a problem. But this is a strict chronology. It's taken from an article that Dr. Eugene Merrill at Dallas Seminary wrote back in the I think late 60s, and the dates are real solid. He did a great job on this and had this table at the end of the article, which um, which helps summarize things. And we see that Joseph as operational in Egypt during the mid-1800s B.C. He dies in 1806, so it's, he's in the 19th century. Now, I just want to comment a little bit about this because some of you may see this special. They'll probably repeat it a few times, as they u- usually do, and you ought to watch it because it is fascinating that somebody took a uh, biblical 
position on the dates and everything. And he tried to do that. But he ends up looking in. He, he had a very good premise. And his premise is that one of the reasons that we've never found archaeological evidence of the Jews being enslaved in Egypt or of anything related to the Exodus event. If you think about it, what you have in the Exodus event is one of the most significant cataclysmic judgments in all of history, second only to the flood and the tribulation, where you have the the major uh, civilization of Egypt, the most powerful Empire on the earth at that time being brought to its knees, so much so that Egypt isn't mentioned again as a military power for another uh, 200 years in the scriptures, Two, uh, maybe more than that, maybe maybe 400 years in the scripture. It just it, Egypt is mentioned only in light of this is where we came from. We came out of Egypt. You go through a concordance and you don't see a reference to Egypt being mentioned militarily for un, until just about the time of David, which is uh, 400 years later. So the, the whole civilization is just about wiped out by the ten plagues. And so people come along and say, well, why is it that if, if the Bible is true that we can't find any archaeological evidence of this? Well, if your chronology is off, then you're going to end up looking in the wrong place. And my contention is and the contention of a number of people is that traditional Egyptian chronology that you find in Cambridge Ancient History, you'll find quoted in many biblical reference works simply because they take the traditional dates assigned by uh, Egyptologists, and so they end up saying that the Tutmos the third or Minotep the fourth was a pharaoh of the oppression, uh, the pharaoh of the Exodus, and they're probably off by as much as two or three hundred years in my opinion. Now, I'm not an Egyptologist, but I've been looking at this stuff since the mid-70s, and there have been a number of people uh, who have come along and offered, I mean, scholars who have come along and offered alternative, alternative dates, but the status quo in Egyptology is about as firm on their dating as evolutionists are, and they rely on a lot of the same faulty uh, information. And those of you who were here what was that, Thursday night, two or three weeks ago when I was in Preston and showed the film on the ICR rate project, the real age of the earth, that's what rate stands for, where they uh, were showing all the problems with all the different uh, dating mechanisms that are used, radiometric dating, potassium, argon, carbon-14, all of these other dating systems. These same problems affect archaeology. And if you think about it, according to the standard uh, Egypt, Egyptian chronology, the, the Old Kingdom and the First Dynasty starts about 3500 or 3700 B.C. Well, you have a little problem because according to Scripture, if you take all the dates correctly, then the flood occurs between 2600 and 2700 B.C. So if the flood is the worldwide cataclysmic judgment that it is portrayed to be in Scripture, it would wipe out the um, the, the uh, pyramids. It would wipe out all you know the Sphinx and all of the other things that we associate with old uh, the old kingdom in Egyptian history. Because when you have that much water covering the face of the earth and swirling and all that power, uh, those pyramids made of 
made of dirt and clay and sand would just wash away. They would dissolve if they're covered with water over a year. And there's no evidence on those pyramids that they were ever covered with water. So you've got a real problem here. So the only solution is that traditional dating of Egyptology is off. So every time you watch something on TV, you need to keep that in your head. And there have been a number of people, one of the most recent scholars was a guy named David Roll, who came along in the early 1990s with a book called Pharaohs and Kings. And he did a two-hour special on the Discovery Channel where he put forth his views. And he took as much as 350 years out of standard Egyptian chronology. Now, that changes everything. Bottom line is we don't know what the Egyptian chronology was. Well, this guy the other night was rather interesting because he argued that there's evidence from several texts that have been discovered from the reign of Amos I. Amos was the first pharaoh in the 18th dynasty. He's like the great-great-great-granddaddy of uh, Thutmose the third. He, you know, you have Amos the first, Amos the second, Thutmose the first, Thutmose the third, second, and then somebody else is in there. I can't keep them all straight, but he's about uh, 75 years earlier than uh, Thutmose the third. So uh, this would, what this guy ends up doing is placing the Exodus at 1500 BC. And then he takes this evidence from this volcano that erupted in the Mediterranean as create the massive eruption that occurred that just absolutely changed the Mediterranean world after its eruption. It was probably ten times more powerful than Krakatoa. And it just, it, it just changed everything. He tries to argue for natural consequences off that volcano that would have created some of the problems such as fiery hail and turning the water into blood. He has some fascinating things there, and it's it's possible that God used natural events to create some of the phenomena of that judgment. Uh, but it's still a matter of timing. Because it's still a miracle, because when Moses said the water is going to turn to blood tomorrow, it turned to blood tomorrow, and Moses didn't know a volcano was erupting out in the middle of the med. So he has some fascinating things, but he's trying, but. There was a recent study, did some research on this on the, on the Internet, and there was a recent study came out from um, Cornell in January that dated this volcano 100 years earlier than what they had suspected. So he's taking stuff from one century and another century. He's trying to bring all this stuff into one place and move the date of the Exodus, and it just really doesn't um, doesn't work. So, but at least somebody's trying to take the biblical numbers and the biblical events uh, as as historical. And part of the problem is we just really don't know enough about uh, about ancient history. But anyway, the bottom line on that is that I wanted you to have a chronology here so that you would be able to consult this when you watch something of that nature and have an idea of when uh, Joseph lived. Okay, open your Bibles to Genesis 37. Last time in our my introduction and overview of this section, this chapter, I said there's basically three doctrinal questions, three doctrinal areas 
that are addressed by this chapter. This is a crucial chapter in Scripture, one of the most crucial chapters in all the Bible because of what we learn and because of its impact in history. As I pointed out last time, we start off with Joseph at home and at uh, peace with his father. Of course, he's got a lot of animosity from his brothers. But at the end of the chapter, Joseph is is a slave in Egypt. And this is the major transition that is taking place. And in one chapter, we see the focus move from the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land that God promised to Abraham. We see the seed being moved, transferred temporarily to Egypt. So we can address several important doctrines here. First is, why do the good suffer? Joseph hasn't done anything wrong. I mean, obviously, he's a sinner. He has a sin nature, and he's, done, he's committed sin. But in terms of the overall scheme of things, he's not a major uh, murderer. He hasn't gone out and committed uh, mass murder like his brothers have. He's not involved in uh, sexual immorality like Judah is. We don't get to that until chapter 38. But the, many of the events in chapter 38 have already taken place uh, at the beginning of Chapter 37, hello? Okay, little light blinking, never hurt anybody. So we can address the question here throughout this section, why is there undeserved suffering in the world? Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Joseph is righteous. He's presented as righteous. There's no flaw or fault presented in this text related to Joseph, yet he is he is rejected by his brothers. They hate him. They, they uh, capture him. They bind him. They put him in a cistern. They, they, uh, first they want to kill him, and then they uh, sell him into slavery. This is not family love. This is, uh, uh, maybe it's your family, but this is not the way it ought to be. This is like uh, Cain and Abel all over again, except instead of one against one, it's uh, 11 against one. So why does this take place? And again, it fits within that broad uh, principle that we have inscripturated in the New Testament that God works all things together for good. He causes all things to work together for good. Even though not everything is good, God is the one who is at work to bring everything uh, together. And this is the doctrine of divine uh, providence. We may not understand why we're going through the suffering, the adversity we're going through right now, but God has a plan and a purpose. Second thing we noted last time is the outworking of divine discipline related to the failures of the family. A key word in this whole section is deception. The brothers are going to deceive their father just like their father deceived his brother and deceived so many. And we just see that there are certain trends, the sin nature, they're passed on from generation to generation. And so there's an outworking of divine discipline here. What they uh, reap, they're going to, I mean, what they sow, they're going to reap. And they are going to, uh, Jacob is seeing the outworking of his own sin nature even in his, uh, even among his sons. Third, we pointed out that God not only works out the details to bring discipline into the family for their lies, murders, and deception, but he then is going to take those lies which aren't good, their murders which aren't good, their deceptions which aren't good, and he is going to work all that together for his glory. He is going to bring good out of it. And so as we go through 
times of adversity, times of chaos, as we go through times perhaps even of historical and military chaos, as we sit out here today and watch what's going on in the world today and the fact that there are leaders in our country who don't seem to understand the seriousness of the threat of people who significantly hate this country and the West and want to destroy it, from Korea to Ahmadinejad in Iraq to many other terrorists, and they refuse to do what is necessary to protect us because they're afraid of one thing or another and or they don't really believe it. We just set ourselves up for a major military defeat. We have problems on our border. Nobody wants to secure the borders. We have problems uh, militarily. Nobody wants to secure uh, things militarily. Nobody wants to do anything about uh, the uh, pursuit of nuclear weapons in Iraq, and we all want to act as if it's not really going on, and we want to trust the U.N. to do it. And the U.N., who, who is the U.N.? The U.N. is Russia. The U.N. is China. The U.N. is Syria. The U.N. is Egypt. So we're going to trust the Russians and the Chinese and the Syrians and the Egyptians and, above all, the French to uh, protect us and to do the right thing, right? What kind of absolute idiocy is this? And yet, you and I are in a generation that just as our fathers had to deal with the same kind of cowardice in the face of the rising threat of Hitler in the 30s, we have to face it, and it may not go as well this time. America may indeed be significantly and horribly attacked by its enemies. And today we live in a world that is so technologically dependent and just think about it. Our parents were coming out of the Depression. They didn't have anything. And they weren't dependent on telephones, and they weren't dependent on computers, and they weren't dependent on all this. They didn't have an entertainment-based uh, lifestyle. And when all this comes crashing down, the only people in this country who are going to have any stability are going to be the believers who have some doctrine in their soul. And you learn doctrine and get to uh, apply doctrine in your soul, and you make it that point of stability the same way Joseph does in his training, and that is by learning step-by-step step how to apply doctrine in the midst of crises. But in the midst of all these things that are going on today, no matter what happens in our own personal lives, we know that God is still in control of history, and he is working all things together for his good and for his glory. And even though all hell may break loose, it might even be the time that Jesus comes back, but it may not. And we may have to go through just an incredible amount of, of instability and national crisis before things stabilize themselves due to the blindness of our leaders. So that brought us up to the fourth point I had for last week, which was that honorable leaders are developed and not born. And that's what we see in, in Joseph. Among a number of different doctrines that we're going to study, one is the doctrine of leadership. And this is so important for us because every believer priest is designed to be a leader. Now, your sphere of leadership may be in the home. You may be a mother. You may be a father. You may have leadership at, in local church. You may have leadership in your job or your career. But every believer is ultimately destined to be a leader in the millennial kingdom. 
I ran across a quote from General Edward C. Meyer, who's a former U.S. Army Chief of Staff. And in this quote he says, Just as the diamond requires three properties for its formation, carbon, heat, and pressure, successful leaders require interaction of three properties. Character, knowledge, and application. Like carbon to the diamond, character is the basic quality of the leader. But as carbon alone does not create a diamond, neither can character alone create a leader. The diamond needs, diamond needs heat. Man needs knowledge, study, and preparation. The third property, pressure. Reacting in conjunction with carbon and heat forms the diamond. Similarly, one's character, attended by knowledge, blooms through application to produce a leader. When we take what he has said, which is a tremendous observation of basic establishment principles that God's built into creation, we see, first of all, the emphasis on character. And that's what we see in the Scripture, an emphasis on character in the spiritual life. This comes first. Galatians 5, 16 through 25 is one of the key sections of Scripture related to this. Chapter, verse 16 is where we get the command to walk by means of the Spirit. And the believer who walks by means of the Spirit, who's abiding in Christ, will study this on Thursday night. The believer who is consistently studying the Word and applying the Word, his third principle, is it has character produced in him, and that's the role of the Holy Spirit. He produces a character transformation. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. This is character transformation. One thing uh, stands out when you look at what God is doing in the life of every believer is that he has destined us beforehand. That's the meaning of that word predestined that so many people get wrapped around the axle over. It means literally to have a destiny chosen ahead of time. And the destiny or the, let's say, the destination that God has chosen for every believer is to be like Jesus Christ, Romans 8 29 and 30. That is our destiny. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is our character. So God takes us from the instant we're saved, He starts taking us through a character training school because He has to get rid of the character that we have, which is based on the strength and power of the sin nature, and He has to... Uh, teach us to rely upon Him, and then God the Holy Spirit is going to produce in us a transformed uh, character. So that's a starting point if we use General Myers' uh, threefold analysis of leadership. The next thing is knowledge. Now, we would put these together as, as, uh, as working together as we understand the Scripture. You can't grow without knowledge. But knowledge of doctrine alone does not mean you're automatically spiritually mature. Now, I saw that when I went through Dallas Seminary. You, you have all kinds of guys there who have all kinds of knowledge of doctrine. That doesn't mean they're spiritually mature. They've just been on an intense study program to learn a lot. But they're, they haven't grown to the level of their academic knowledge. So... 
you have knowledge, you can't apply what you don't know. And you don't know what you don't take the time to study and think about, meditate on, and focus on. You have to make it a priority to learn. And learning isn't easy. And learning involves not only learning content in terms of what to think, but you also have to learn how to think. And the more that you and I live in a pagan environment, the more the world around us operates on human viewpoint systems and the more Satan's cosmic thinking uh, impacts the world around us, the more you have to learn as a believer how to think. It's not like living back in the 1930s and the 1940s and the 1950s where you can talk to your neighbor and you can say, well, the Bible says we ought to do this. And they go, yeah, right, where, where even if, they're, um, if that next-door neighbor may not be a fundamentalist Christian, even if they a, a, were a Methodist or a Presbyterian, they at least had a cultural recognition of the authority and priority of the Bible. But now your next-door neighbor is a Hindu or an atheist or a Buddhist or a New Age witch, and they really don't care what the Bible says. <laughs> they are all of the above. They don't care what the Bible says anymore. And when you go to school and you send your kids off to public school, you may have a, they may have a Muslim teacher, they may have a uh, they may have an atheist teacher and probably will at some point, if not uh, uh, by the t- time they get to college, at least when they do get to college. They're going to have uh, Buddhists and Hindus and New Age witches and everything else teaching them in school and communicating those values. So they have to learn how to think in a non-Christian culture. And it's fine when you're living in a, a Christian culture to just learn what to think. But when you live in a non... What in the world? That's the wind? Are we having a storm out there? Well, we'll just hunker down. When, um, when you're living in a non-Christian environment, it's just like in the early church. When you got into the early church the, and you study church history... And, you, and, and church historians periodize history. That means they'll talk about the fact that you have the early church, which goes from the end of the apostolic age and roughly uh, 100, A.D. 100, to the uh, beginning of the Roman Catholic period, the early medieval church, which would be 600. That period is known as the early church, and it's divided into certain uh, subsections. And the one of the first sections is known as the time of the apologists. Before the theologians. Why? Because the first thing that happened as you started proclaiming this is the truth, Jesus is the only way to God, the first thing that happened is how can you say that? On what basis do you say that? You say you believe in in one God, but you say you have a God the Father and Jesus is God. That sounds like two gods to me. You know, you sound like you don't, you're, you're illogical. See, from the very beginning, living in a, operating in the pagan world of Rome, the early church started getting attacked from the outside, from Greek philosophers and from Jewish leaders. And before they could ever get to the point where they were developing 
uh, their understanding of the Trinity, their understanding of the deity of Christ, or any of these other things, they had to defend the faith. They had to be able to explain why it was true. And the principle is that whenever you're operating in a pagan environment, and the more pagan the environment, the more it's necessary. You have to learn to think critically. And that's where apologetics comes in. And you have to learn to answer these questions. But you have to learn how to think and not what to think. Because anybody can tell you what to think, but as soon as you walk around the corner and you've got a new scenario, and now you're talking to your neighbor on the left who's a Hindu instead of the Muslim on the right, you, you even though the principles are the same, you have to have some kind of idea what they're going to say. Because when you start talking to them about God, the Hindu's going to come from a different frame of reference than the Muslim. And you can't just go out there and have drive-by evangelism and shoot them with your gospel gun and run down the street and think that that's all there is to it. Because you go through the scripture and you analyze how Paul and others gave the gospel to pagans in uh, Athens and in uh, other cities, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, Acts 14, Acts 17. You see how he sat down and he interacted with them and he discussed these things with them. He didn't just say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, believe it, and then go to the next town. He reasoned with them. He talked through with them. They were people who had, uh, even though there were some that were skeptical, there were others that and weren't ever going to be have their mind changed. There were others who had just heard a lot of uh, different philosophical ideas and were bringing these objections up just because they wanted to have those things answered. It wasn't out of hostility. It was out of, okay, I'm just trying to work through this. So it took them a while to get their questions answered. And then we know that even in Athens there were those, there was Dionysius the Areopia guide who trusted Christ as his Savior. So there were a few in Athens who did respond positively to the gospel. The vast majority were Stoics and Epicureans, and they, they weren't winnable. So the point is that in any environment, we, we have to not only have knowledge, but that knowledge comes with application. It's not just what you know. It's the ability to use it and to think. And that's that third area that uh, General Meyer talks about, which is application. So these three things work together to build leadership. Now, knowledge is important. Second Peter 3.18 says that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the reasons I'm emphasizing this thing on knowledge tonight is because we live in a world that is fundamentally irrational. It has rejected knowledge as the path to truth, the path to insight, the path to God. That's why we live in an age where New Age mysticism has gone mainstream. And many people just just buy into it and think nothing about it. They like tarot cards and they read the astrology and channeling and all this terminology. Now, it's mainstream. Twenty years ago, I would talk about the New Age movement, and people went, huh? I never heard of that. And then you have Jay-Z, Night Channel, and Romtha on Good Morning America and all this stuff. and and uh, And that's all gone mainstream now. We have to have knowledge. That is crucial. Romans 12.2 deals with application. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renovation of your mind, the renewing, the overhaul of your thinking. All of this, the basic model for the local church is one of education. 
what we have today is that the basic model of, that most pastors have of the church and many seminaries teach in, in ecclesiology and all the how-to classes on uh, pastoral ministries, the basic model is, so, is, is social rather than educational. And the reason you go to church is for fellowship. And so that's, see, that's a social uh, framework for understanding the local church. And I try to communicate this. When I went to college, I had a great social life. I, I imagine most of you who went to university uh, had a good social life too. But that really wasn't the focus of the thinking of the board of trustees. They weren't real concerned. In fact, they really wanted the students to have less social life. I think at University of Texas today, uh, the board of trustees there is probably quite concerned since uh, University of Texas just got uh, recognized by the Princeton Review as the number one party school in America that uh, the board of trustees there probably think they have too much social life. So their focus is on education, but even in an environment, because God created us to be social, relational beings, uh, even in an environment that's primarily educational, we're de- we develop social relationships and friendships and, and fellowship. When I went to Dallas Seminary, Lord knows it had even less of a social life than when I went to went to college, went to university, but I still maintained some friendships with the, some of the men that I went through seminary with. But that wasn't the goal of the Board of uh, Regents or the Board of Trustees of Dallas Seminary. The point is that that's not the job of the pastor or the Board of Deacons or the uh, uh, Board of Elders at some churches, whatever it is, to make sure that you all have a good social life and have good Christian fellowship. Our job is to make sure that there's an environment here where you can learn the Word of God and grow to spiritual maturity. And as a result of that, y'all are going to, without you know, too much encouragement from anybody else, y'all are going to have great fellowship. I had to really shut y'all down tonight. Everybody's back there eating cookies. I don't know of any church that has more cookies than we do. And everybody wants to come a little bit early on uh, Bible class night to see what kind of cookies or brownies or, or goodies or whatever is back there in the kitchen. And we have more going on back in the kitchen than we do out here. But see, it, it, you don't need any encouragement, just an environment where you can relate to other people and talk and visit and get to know folks. And that's good and that's fine. But the reason we're here is not to have fellowship. If that was our reason, let's go down to the local bar. You know, where everybody knows your name and, and uh, nobody's going to uh, condemn you or judge you and, and you'll just be around a bunch of other alcoholics. So we're to be transformed by the renovation of our thinking. That's the framework for, uh, for the Christian life. And that's how leaders are developed is we are trained and God takes us through a training program. Revelation 20, verse 6. Let's jump all the way to the end of the Bible. So we can begin Genesis with the end in mind, Revelation. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Now there are several increments to the first resurrection. And one of those increments is the rapture of the church. And another increment is the resurrection of martyred tribulation believers or tribulation believers who die. These all take part in the first resurrection, which comes to completion at the end of the tribulation at the second advent of Christ. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they, who's the they? The they are those who took place in the first resurrection. That that means a number of things which I don't need to go into. What that means for us is we're all going to be part of that first resurrection. 
But they, that is you and I, if we survive tonight and don't get blown away in an electrical storm, um, you and I will be priests of God and of Christ and shall what? Shall reign with Him for a thousand years. See, that's your destiny. That's my destiny. We're going to not only be priests in the millennial kingdom in our resurrection body, but we are going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Folks, that's a leadership responsibility. That is a leadership position. Every one of you here, male, female, young, old, all of us are destined for a leadership position. You may not have one right now, but you are in training in this life for a leadership position in the millennial kingdom. And in the same way, Joseph was in preparation for his leadership position. Now, I want to run you through an oldie-goldie chart here that gives you that blueprint for the Christian life. Now, we all know there's three phases or three stages to the Christian life. Phase one is salvation. When you put your faith alone in Christ alone, that makes you a player in the great end game of history, the millennial kingdom, once you put your faith alone in Christ alone. Then we go into phase two, which is the training program. Dynamics were a little different in the Old Testament, but it was still basically the same. We have a training program, and what comes out the other end in phase three, when we die and we're face-to-face with the Lord, has to do with accountability and position in the future kingdom. Old Testament saints are resurrected at the end of the tribulation as well. And Old Testament saints like Joseph and David and Abraham and and Jephthah and Joshua and all the Old Testament saints are going to have ruling responsibilities in the Millennial Kingdom in relationship to Israel. See, we're going to have a different role. We're going to be in relationship uh, to the nations. Now, this training program, as I pointed out here, let's go back to phase two, is built on this one thing right here in the middle, tests of doctrine, tests, examinations. God is going to take us through one test after another to test what we know, to test that knowledge. And it's the testing of the knowledge that produces character, but it only produces character when there's right application. So that's how, in the Christian life, knowledge, character, and application fit together. And that is to produce uh, good leaders. Now let's look at a couple of passages. James 1-2. My brethren, count it all joy. That's a command. Present uh, imperative, continuous, standard operating procedure, primary, um, a primary characteristic of the believer's life. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And that word for trials, sometimes it's translated temptation, but it's the Greek word perosmos, which has to do with testing. If it's subjective, it can mean temptation. But here it's the idea of testing. You're going to fall into all kinds of tests. The word there for falling into is, indicates that you don't expect it. It's just you're going to go out the door and you're in a hurry to get somewhere and you have a flat tire. You didn't expect it and now it's a test of your mental attitude, how you're going to react to this particular uh, situation. Or you go into work thinking everything's wonderful and you get pink slipped. This is the test that we go, we just, they just happen every day. Uh, some of them are small, some of them are large and we're to count it joy 
when we fall into various trials because or you have a causal participle. This is a revised translation, my translation of these verses. You're able to count it joy because you know something. See, that joy was a character quality back in Galatians 5, wasn't it? For the fruit of the Spirit is love, what? Joy. Love, joy. So here, count it all joy. So you have character is the result of knowledge in the midst of testing, application. So you, because you know that the testing of your faith, and there the concept of testing has to do with evaluation. It's uh, the same root for that word, for testing, is what we have over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about the evaluation of believers at the judgment seat of Christ. It's based on the, on the verb dokimazo, which means to test or to evaluate. Because you know that the testing or the evaluation of your faith produces endurance. See, that's also, that's perseverance. Hupomone in the Greek, it is sticking with a task. And we're going to see this. In Joseph's character in this chapter, he's already beginning to develop a sense of duty, a sense of responsibility that even when he faces obstacles, he is not going to let those obstacles deter him from accomplishing and fulfilling his responsibility. But there's a progression here in James 1.4. Let endurance have its maturing impact. So you have a a cycle that goes on here. Let endurance have its maturing impact that you may be spiritually mature and complete, lacking nothing. So we go through this test process. We have instruction of doctrine, then we have to apply the doctrine. That's what a test of faith is. It's not a, the testing of your faith isn't testing your ability to trust God. See, that's how most people read this, testing every faith. Okay, test my ability to trust God. Now, this is another use of the word faith. We use this word faith in the sense of what you believe as opposed to the act of believing. Uh, what you believe, you ask somebody, what's your article of faith? Some churches have articles of faith. That's a, a way of talking about their doctrinal statement. It's what they believe. You meet somebody, you say, well, what's your faith? What is the content of your faith? What do you believe? Are you Presbyterian, Roman, Catholic, Hindu, or Methopresbyterian? What are you? So we have... We have the content of faith here because you know that the testing of your, what, the doctrine that's in your soul is how that should be understood. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance is the key in that progress of spiritual growth. So when we take it a little slower going through this chart, we see that the first thing we hit is this test of doctrine, and then we have to make a decision whether or not we're going to trust in what we've learned and apply the doctrine or live it out on our own. And if we go in one direction, it produces divine good. We begin to experience the abundant life that Christ has for us. Our life becomes evidence in the, uh, against Satan in the uh, angelic conflict. It produces endurance and the adult spiritual life. But if, on the other hand, we react negatively to doctrine, try to handle these problems on our own, then it produces sin, human good, temporal death, weakness and instability, spiritual regression, and a hardened heart. We just, we, we're either operating in that top cycle or in the bottom cycle, one or the other. 
And when life is over with, then we go to the judgment seat of Christ, and we're either going to get rewards and an inheritance, which means leadership responsibility in the kingdom, or there'll be a loss of rewards and temporary shame. That's the framework. I want us to think about that when we think about Joseph and this training program that God uh, is taking him through. Now, another key promise that every one of you should have memorized is 1 Corinthians 10.13. I think I memorized this every single year I went to Camp Peniel when I was growing up, trying to get, you know, whatever their Bible memory uh, thing was. And finally, when I was in seminary, I got it locked down, and I didn't have to go back and review it every year. No temptation, that means testing. No testing has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Every one of us go through the same categories of testing. The details may differ a little bit, but it's the same category. But God is faithful. The tests are different. We live in a cosmic system. It's miserable living in the world system, but God is always faithful. God never changes. And He will not allow us to be tested beyond what you are able. Now, A lot of people misread that. Let me tell you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have God the Holy Spirit inside of you and you have the Word of God, you are able to handle anything. That's your potential. You can handle anything. Uh, Some people get the idea, and you'll hear people say this, uh, man, that's a real vote of confidence from God if that happened to you because uh, he wouldn't let that happen if he didn't think that you were able to handle it. But, you know, we've seen some pretty drastic, horrible things happen to people who've just been a believer for about six hours. So that's a false application. This ability that's mentioned here is an ability that is is available to every believer potentially because of the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit and because you have the Word of God. So God's not going to test us beyond what the Word of God says. The Word of God is sufficient and gives us the ability to handle everything. But will, with the temptation, that is, with the test, also make a way of escape? Now, there's another place we misread this. Escape doesn't mean we're going to... Escape doesn't mean we're going to get away from the test. I just love the extra sound effects. (laughs) I wonder if this is coming, if all that thunder and lightning is coming across on the tape. Um, this doesn't mean that you're going to get out from under it. That if you're in a situation where you are in uh, uh, unemployment, that that means that you're going to claim this promise and tomorrow you're going to be employed and you're going to get out from under it. It doesn't mean that. The way of escape is really a way to survive with happiness, joy, peace, and stability because that last phrase is the key when it's a purpose clause, that you may be able to bear it. See, it's not to escape to get away from it. It is that you can escape the negative consequences of human viewpoint thinking so that you can stay under the test, carry or bear the burden of that test or that difficulty that may go on for months years, and not ever change. But you're able to handle it and have consistency and stability and joy and peace and tranquility because God's given you the solution. But you have to learn that. And we learn that by, you usually, I love the saying, we, we, 
become wise as a result of uh, how's that saying go? Something about wisdom comes from uh, from experience, or good decisions comes from experience, and experience comes from bad decisions, (laughs) right? Uh, good good decisions come from experience, and experience come from bad decisions. So we go through this process where we fail a lot, especially as young believers. We fail to apply the word. We press the panic button. We try to solve problems on our own. And as we grow and mature, we begin to learn that we have to trust God. And so gradually growth takes place. We learn to trust God. We don't press the panic button as rapidly, and we don't get out of, out of fellowship. Now, all of that's by way of introduction to what's going to happen with uh, Joseph in this passage. But our time is up, so I'm going to wait until next time before we get into verse 12, which is the situation sets up Joseph and his first test, which it deals with rejection and disloyalty. And in the, con- and in the midst of this, we see that Joseph... While he is rejected, doesn't reject his brothers, they're angry with him, they're bitter, they're jealous, but he doesn't reject them. They're disloyal to him, but he's not disloyal to them. And that is because of the doctrine in his soul. But then we're going to see in the midst of this that as they carry out their conspiracy, he does press the panic button. And that happens a few times with Joseph, but that's how he's growing. So we'll come back next time and get into that. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by these things, to recognize that we all go through the same growth dynamics, and we have to learn to walk by the Spirit step by step, learning principles, learning promises, claiming those promises, implementing the principles. And in the process, God the Holy Spirit produces growth and maturity, and it's a training to prepare us for our future responsibilities. Father, we pray that you'll keep us safe on the roads as we go home in the midst of this storm. Father, watch over us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.